0: Welcome to the Blind Side: News and Information from a Blindness Perspective. Here's Jonathan Moser.
1: Wonderful as always to be back with you for this podcast. Thanks so much for checking it out. And if you are noticing a bit of a difference, you're right and you're very observant. Yes, I've had a haircut, and I'm holding my head close to the microphone so you can admire that haircut. I hope you like it. It looks all right, apparently. I won't talk too long before we get into the main part of the podcast today because it is an extended interview and i know there'll be a lot of interest in this because we're going to be speaking with victor tsarin who is the technical program manager accessibility initiatives at google we are going to talk quite a bit about android accessibility particularly with talkback the state of it where it's doing well where victor himself believes it needs to improve And it's a candid interview, and I have enormous respect for Victor for doing such a candid interview, but he also has a fantastic story to tell about his own life and his own history of discovering computers and indeed discovering the United States. So I hope you enjoy listening to the interview as much as I enjoyed my time talking with Victor, somebody who continues to make a fantastic contribution to our community and has done so for many years. Before we get into that though, just a couple of things. I reminder that if you would like to comment on the podcast, you're welcome to record an audio file for possible inclusion in the podcast. Or you can send me a good old-fashioned textual email. Maybe you have some suggestions about topics we should cover in future editions. It's all good stuff. Drop me an email to the blind side or joined together at mosen.org. That's the blind side at mo now, in the last edition of the podcast, just before we spoke with ACB President Kim Chawson, and thanks everybody for the feedback on that, you may recall that I mentioned that on our kind of companion talk show, call-in show on Mushroom FM, called A Cuppa at the Mosins, we were going to be talking about issues that we think about a little more at this time of year, Valentine's Day. So we had assembled a panel to discuss issues like how blind people find love interests. And we were going to look at online dating, the old-fashioned way of going out and meeting people, potential fishhooks and benefits involved in looking for love when you're a blind person. And we were going to be looking at that from a range of perspectives with a panel. And because it's a call-in show, where you can call in with telephone numbers from all around the world, and indeed using a high-quality web technology, that's accessible through Firefox and Chrome, you can call in that way too. Well, about an hour and a quarter before I was to do that show with Bonnie, I initiated something that caused a massive computer crash, which required me to rebuild the system, and we didn't do that show. And I know a lot of people tuned in for it and were disappointed that we weren't able to bring it to air, but we are going to have a crack at it this Thursday, which is still only two days after Valentine's Day. So all is not really lost. So if you tuned in for that show last week and missed it, I hope you'll give us another chance this week. I promise to be good and not to do too much adventurous with the computer before then. And if you didn't hear it last week, well, I hope you'll give it a listen this week when it really will air and there'll be a discussion, but there'll also be plenty of opportunity for you to call in which is one of the great things about this live interactive call-in show. The show is called A Kappa at the Mosins. It airs on Mushroom FM at 9pm Eastern Time every Thursday night. If by chance you can't hear it live, because that's crazy o'clock, unfortunately, in some parts of the world. To paraphrase Jimmy Buffett, it's crazy o'clock somewhere. All the time. And so that's on at 2 a.m. UK time, which is not a good time for UK listeners. So we do replay the show on a Monday morning at 4 a.m. Eastern, which is 9 a.m. in the UK on a Monday morning. The website to find out more information about a cuppa at the Mosins is www.mushroomfm.com slash That's www.mushroomfm.com slash C-U-P-P-A very much looking forward to you tuning in and to your participation about a topic that I know has been on our minds of late and a topic that was generating a lot of interest last week in anticipation of the show we will do it this week
0: it's time to hear from this week's featured guest on the blind side
1: the first time I came across our guest on The Blind Side this week was, I think, back in 2000 when I was setting up the ACB Radio Cafe. And this was an idea that I had where we would start an internet radio station showcasing the music of blind musicians. And we would have Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder and those guys who were very famous. But we would also feature people who were making music in those days in the very early days of computer-based music and our guest contacted me with a great bunch of stuff and we aired that on the acb radio cafe and i followed his career and his advancement over the last uh, 16 years or so and he's now at the point where he is the technical program manager accessibility initiatives for google but he's done a lot of other stuff as well it's victor and he joins me now from california welcome to you victor it's really great to have you on the blind side Hi Jonathan, same here. You grew up in the Ukraine. Now, if I'm dating this correctly, that would be Soviet Union Ukraine to begin with, right?
2: Right. Yeah. So I was born uh, when the Soviet Union still existed, but I was coming out of age somewhere around, you know, when Perestroika and all the, you know, big changes started happening. So for me, I wouldn't consider myself. I mean, you could say I grew up in the Soviet Union, but uh, you know, my mentality is sort of like a little bit different. Because when I was already becoming a, you know, thinking person starting to sort of analyze things around me. The Soviet Union as such already didn't exist and in fact things were going in a totally opposite direction.
1: Yes, the experience of the Soviet Union was so different depending on where you were, of course. But I had a really interesting conversation Actually, back when I was working for Humanware and we did a German version of the Braille Note. And it was quite an experience as a history buff for me to go through where Checkpoint Charlie used to be and go into the, the part of the country that was East Berlin. And I talked to a blind guy there who was a very capable audio engineer, broadcasting audio engineer. And he said, The thing about being a blind person at least for the in the Soviet Union that he was a part of in East Berlin, was that they did have a plan for everybody and that they actually went to quite some lengths to make sure that he could engineer, and this is pre-computer era, he could engineer some very sophisticated uh, musical broadcasts of orchestras and stuff like that, and they came up with all these accessible meters and this sort of stuff. And since the Soviet Union collapsed, he was kind of left to drift. And I wondered what your expectations were you know when you were very young and in that uh, Soviet Union era what did you expect to become as a blind person living in that kind of environment
2: yeah you know that that's that's actually a very interesting um, topic because you're totally right I think in in the sort of um, Soviet space see I guess I want to sort of differentiate East Berlin was a little bit in slightly different position because East Germany was always like one of those better socialist countries. You know, everybody looked up, you know, to what was going on in Germany. So I think they were probably slightly ahead of some of the countries on on the so-called Soviet territory like Ukraine or, or Belarus or even Russia. But it is true that things were planned for many people and especially if you had any kind of disability, I think one of the first things they would do is to somehow isolate you from the society. So you you would study in a school for the blind. Some factories were built for blind people. And uh, for example, you could be making brushes or some light switches, you know, very simple things, but uh, they would find you a job that would guarantee you pretty much employment for the rest of your life. On top of that, you would normally live in the dormitories that were attached to those factories. Uh, and I, I clearly remember I didn't work in any of those because, like I said, I was too young. But I visited a few of of, um, of people that I knew there, and it was really cool because they, uh, you know, in general, it wasn't very accessible environment. But whatever there was, factory for the blind or the dormitory, they would, um, you know, have um, audio uh, signals to cross streets, and they would have like this um, like little rail that you could trace from the bus stop all the way to the dormitory and it was like i don't know it was maybe about 300 meter long or something like that but you could even if a blind person even if you didn't use a cane you could somehow get home yeah. you know to, to your bed so so i mean it was planned to the point uh where as long as the rest of the society didn't come in contact with you everything was okay but obviously the society itself was totally unprepared for having blind people as uh you know their counterparts I think I dreamed of being a history teacher, but again, this dream sort of changed uh, because my dreams became a little bit more wild. Since uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, it's, it suddenly became possible to dream about things you didn't think about before. But uh, um, yeah, I didn't. I wouldn't say I had big dreams. I probably, I think, I dreamt of being a teacher in the school for the blind because that's all I knew, and I thought this probably would be way better than going to the factory. You know, being a teacher, even if the school for the blind still was, a you know, much more preferable dream for me than than any other.
1: And even when you were at school, and for many people in Western countries, the Perkins Braille was the thing. You were working with slate and stylus technology then?
2: Yeah, absolutely. All the way through my university years, I, I used uh, uh, a yeah, slate and stylus, you know, punching dots in the paper six or seven hours a day. So, yeah, that that certainly was my my way of typing things.
1: <laughs> the Ukrainian people are a very proud people with a proud history and got very badly scarred, particularly by the Stalin regime. You must be looking back at some of the things that have happened in Ukraine over the last two or three years with considerable concern, I would think.
2: Yeah, there's... there's um, um, it's... It's a country, you know, it's, it's a country with a destiny of, uh, you know, a territory that's being squeezed between big powers who are always, you know, trying to fight. And you naturally become a, a, a place where these things, the battles for supremacy take place. And uh, it's very interesting, you know, because on the one uh, we have uh, on the one side we have on the western border, we have Poland. And on on the eastern border, we have Russia. And obviously, you know, with with Polish people, we, you know, had some interesting times. You know, sometimes we were friends, sometimes we were enemies. Uh, A lot of it was based on the religion, uh, religious sort of uh, differences, right? Because Ukraine was primarily Orthodox, whereas Poland was Catholic. And with Russia obviously being, uh, you know, the country that always tries to be, wanted to be the dominant power in the world, you know, clearly they want everyone to be under their wing. So, yeah, and, and, you know, as a result, as you can imagine, when people try to stand, uh, stand up to, to someone who's trying to take their freedom, you know, naturally the strongest one does whatever they can to, uh, to destroy culture and music and, uh, you know, just basically destroy people. Uh, and to me, especially, it's very close because of the culture, uh, during Stalin regime, a lot of the artists, uh, died simply because they were singing in Ukrainian or they were writing in Ukrainian or just even thinking in Ukrainian was suppressed uh, very heavily. So to me, I guess, you know, despite all the other genocide-like things that, that they were doing, this probably one hurts quite a lot because obviously that that, that resonates even today. Uh, language is, is being spoken, uh, Ukrainian language is only being spoken in half of the country uh, and this is all obviously a result of of this these policies
1: yeah and one hopes right, that i that. know you're a big enthusiast for technology and one hopes that the the kind of technology that is in people's hands now, and you look at the Arab Spring, I suppose, as an example of this, makes it more difficult for tyrants to have their way. I mean, they can install firewalls and they can try and block access, but people can try and work around those things. It it would appear to be a little harder now to be a tyrant, absolutely, which is a yeah. good thing.
2: Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. And, and even the latest uh, events in 2013 um, in Ukraine, there um I mean, clearly indicated that, the, yeah, right now with technology, it's just so much harder to control because even if you try to restrict the internet, people have so many other ways of communicating, uh, you know, the information. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, clearly this has been a very powerful weapon in the hands of of people who just, you know, want to fight for their freedom. It, it, it also equally is a very powerful hands, a, a powerful uh, weapon in the hands of, you know, people who are trying to destroy that freedoms. But at least there is, uh, you know, there is an interesting space where people can explore new opportunities for exchanging, sharing information and yeah, using this information for, you know, to advance their causes.
1: And in the early 1990s, you visited the United States for the first time. That was for study, I think. How did that come about?
2: How do you know? <laughs> I, I do my
1: research before these interviews. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, so, so um, it was a very interesting story. I was studying uh, the School for the Blind. It was mass, uh, my last year. And the director of my school, I was then actually getting into music, uh, but that's probably a separate, I guess, conversation we'll have. And the director of my school came up and said, you know, we have these sponsors from Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian-American uh, um, people who live in America, but they're Ukrainians. They're looking to sponsor someone to come and study to the U.S. because there's a very interesting international program at Overbrook School for the Blind in Philadelphia. This program doesn't exist anymore, but back then, they would host students from different countries for about a year, and you know they would study different subjects like computers and American history, business English. And yeah, they, they were looking because no one from Ukraine ever studied that program. I mean, there were students from Germany and Japan, because it was pretty expensive, I think the stipend—and and, sorry, the scholarship was something like, I don't know, maybe thirty thousand dollars, something like that. But and so they were looking for someone, and, and uh, at that time, I became sort of—I um, wouldn't want to say a star in Ukraine, but certainly well known because of the music festival that I won. You know, she said, "You know, it seems like you're you're the right person to represent us." So the whole thing lasted for about two years because then these wonderful people from Cleveland, they were collecting money. It took them a lot of time and effort to just come up with, with that sum of money. But yeah, uh, thanks to them, in 1994, I came here to Philadelphia to study. This was my first time in the U.S. and actually in the West, I would say. So so this was quite an experience.
1: I bet it was were you an English speaker at all before you first visited the US? Had you had you learned English?
2: I studied uh, German at school, so I I learned English basically just on my own. You know, listening to Beatles and reading some uh, uh, blind uh, magazines from the US and listening to BBC. Yeah, it was a basically self uh, self taught um, effort.
1: Big culture change, I would imagine, going mm-hmm. to the United oh, yeah. States. Yeah.
2: And and you know on top of it all uh, you know Philadelphia is a very um, special it, it's a it's a very interesting city because there's a lot of African Americans who live there and so you can imagine for me sort of studying from from dictionaries and listening <laughs> yeah. to BBC, see you know come to Philadelphia and suddenly hear in uh, you know African American accent I mean honestly for me it was pretty much like studying New English altogether I could not understand fifty percent of what they were saying so. <laughs> But well, this was also quite an experience in itself. You know.
1: I don't know if you've ever seen the movie *Good Morning Vietnam*, but there's a really great section where uh, the main character is teaching these Vietnamese kids colloquial American English. And it's uh, mm-hmm. it's very funny. You probably relate to it if you haven't seen the movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now at Overbrook, that's where you encountered your first accessible technology.
2: Yes. I, I, in fact, this is yeah completely true. I uh, until. Overbrook, um, you know, at my university, I was studying philosophy uh, at that time when I left. Uh, One of the classes we had to take was computer science. And the professor came up to me and said, you know, I don't quite know what to do with you. Um, I I could show you how to play, you know, music or maybe I could show you how to type. But he said, you know, maybe if you don't feel like it, you can just skip uh, my classes altogether and I'll just give you some grade." Uh, because it, honestly, I have no idea. I would love to help, but I just have no, no idea at all. And so when I came to Overbrook and I saw, you know, these XA eighty-six computers, and I wish there was a way to describe it, but it was it, it was such a transformational change from, you know, suddenly gaining access, and you know, back then, you know, we had access to Compuserve and and Encyclopedia, and then suddenly. You could do all of this stuff on your own. I mean, this this was not just impactful. I mean, it was totally revolutionary. In fact, this probably defined what defined my future career, basically. And then, you know, uh, 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 close to the end of the year when we actually got on the internet because they, um, they signed up a contract with a local provider. They actually allowed us to log in and use Unix, you know, Pine and all, all this IRC and all this crazy, <laughs> amazing stuff. We thought it was so amazing. That, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, Gopher, yeah. of course. And, and speaking of Gopher, I actually found there are still websites who serve Gopher protocols. Oh, but the problem is that nobody supports them anymore. <laughs> 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 anyway, and then, you know, things got into Windows, so outspoken. Uh, but this was a little closer to the end of the year. Uh, I think it was like end of 94, and I think JAWS for Windows came out in 95. So, <clears throat> So, yeah, back at the school. And then, you know, of course, Braille printers, you know, the first time I saw Braille printer.
1: When you finished your time at Overbrook, I know eventually that you traveled around uh, Asia and were teaching people about the use of computers. Did you actually go back to Ukraine after your U.S. visit?
2: Yeah. So so one of the big things that also happened for me in uh, <clears throat> at Overbrook is that I, I met uh, my girlfriend, who later became my wife, and... Uh, my partner pretty much through through all of my life. The reason I mention that is because you mentioned traveling. And so after Overbrook I came back to um to Ukraine where I established uh, the first computer center for the blind. In the meantime I was traveling between Ukraine and Poland pretty much on, I don't know, bi-monthly basis to make sure that we can sustain our friendship, you know, with my girlfriend because you know how it is very easy, you know, in the distance Things can fall apart very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, and and then both of us returned to Philadelphia. I completed my computer science degree, and uh, she did masters in liberal arts and bachelor's in Asian studies. And and when we're getting close to the end of our studies, you know, we started looking for a job because if we didn't find a job within sixty days, I don't know if you know all the visa requirements. Basically, have to come back to your country, and so we, we obviously liked the United States. We wanted to stay but unfortunately finding a job within 60 days you know that's that's very hard mm-hmm. and so it didn't happen for us but luckily the guy who was leading the international program at Overbrook Larry Campbell we also were really good friends with him he called us up one day and he said you know I have a few ideas that I would like to start some local computer centers in asia and since I know you guys are, you know, finishing up your studies, would you like to do some assignments for me and travel? Which for us, of course, was just like, wow, this is amazing. You know, who would have ever dreamed? And that started for the next two years, we basically traveled all around Asia, teaching kids and teachers and helping establish computer centers in in Vietnam, Cambodia, um, Thailand, Philippines, you know, uh, Malaysia and so on and so forth. So, so it was. Also quite unexpected, but quite an amazing experience that taught us a lot of things about cultures and how you work, um, how you teach across uh, you know cross-cultural boundaries because you know explaining computers to people whose uh, English is very, very bad. it's pretty complicated, right? because a lot of the words they're so anglicized, right? I mean computer reboot and everything we use these days, and and what happens with those languages, people basically take these words and they just, uh, they don't even translate them, they basically repeat them. Uh, and what often happens is they don't really understand the meaning of those words. And so we had to work with a lot of these restrictions. But this was an amazing experience to make us think differently, make us think not as people who speak English, but people who are trying to explain the concepts to um, someone who may not speak English as well or even understand these concepts.
1: I think one of the things that is true for people of, of our kind of age is that we were around when this technology started to be developed and really go mainstream or effective and in your case you were exposed to it with a kind of hey wow moment you know this can change my life and one of the things that's clear to me is that this really is still something that you feel strongly that you can look back you can kind of have a have a helicopter view of this and say hey wow it really is amazing how far we've come and that enthusiasm i would imagine is something that you were able to pass on to the people that you worked with and say hey look this can really change your life
2: no you're absolutely right i think that's why uh, for me it it is quite easy to do public speaking because i don't actually have to i mean all i have to do is basically speak from my own experience which in some ways, as you say, is unique in the sense that, uh, you know, I lived through this whole thing, basically starting with, with not being able to type. There was no internet where I was born, and then coming and uh, experiencing all the technological ch- technological changes that were taking place in the world, Not not just for me personally, but this is what the whole world was experiencing. I don't even have to invent anything. I just basically speak... <laughs> You know, tell people my my uh, my story, and that that in itself is, I guess, is empowering, and it makes people excited about uh, the possibilities technologies bring into into lives, uh, especially uh, people of people with disabilities.
1: You eventually made your way to Silicon Valley, and I think Yahoo was your first gig, and you were there for a while. How did you get to Yahoo ultimately?
2: Yeah. So, um, after uh, our Asian travels, you start growing up and you think, you know, traveling is great, but you probably want to settle down or start thinking about a bit more permanent living conditions. And so we again started looking toward the U S for some job opportunities. And, and again, as you know, friend of a friend of a friend, my good friend from Hungary, um, uh, basically said, yeah, I work right now at the company called, um, uh, Bartimius group, uh, now known as SSB BART, but back then they were Bartimius group. And maybe um, I could arrange an interview for both of you guys with, with our CEO, and then maybe you could come and work here. And that's exactly what happened. So we came back to the US, but the, but this time to Washington, D.C. Um, and so, you know, I worked at uh, BART for a few years, you know, doing Section 508 and learning just scripting and, you know, doing all the all the things you do at the accessibility consulting company, and and then again, uh, one day I um, received a an email from from another uh, friend, and he said, you know, I I uh, heard that someone from Yahoo is looking for an an individual to start their accessibility program because they're really feeling the pinch. Would you be interested or pass it around? And I said, wow, this is this this is an interesting opportunity that that would be so difficult to pass up. And yeah, that's how, um you know, I flew up here for an interview um and um it um just happened. um, I was their first blind employee, and again, it was an interesting position to be in because for many people, this was the only sort of blind person they ever met in their life, and for me again, it was just like, yeah, this is a ground zero this is this is new territory you can work in you can do whatever you want, you know it's great opportunity, right.
1: It's a long way that you've come isn't it? I mean you must feel very proud and pinch yourself sometimes and think wow this is a this is a remarkable story and and that you're at the yeah. center of it.
2: You know when I do uh, I I I rarely pinch myself I probably should be doing it more often but you're right when, when you do start just when you just sit down and you know one of those sort of quiet moments and you think to yourself it is amazing that that so many things have happened. But I rarely think about this for some reason, maybe because there's still so much to do.
1: Yeah, I get that. I want to ask you about any reflections you might have on being a blind person. One of my favorite quotes, I don't know whether you're familiar with it, is the one that uh, former US President Teddy Roosevelt made about being in the arena. And basically the point of the quote is that it's really easy to criticize, but when you're in the arena... You make mistakes, sometimes you fall short, uh, but at least you're in there, you're being enthusiastic, you're making a difference, and that's where the credit belongs. I think there are challenges for blind people who go the path that people who choose to work for any technology company go down because – by way of example, I was researching before recording this interview with you, and I, you know, I've you been using the Wayback Machine and Google and various other tools, looking at things that you've done. And I read a very nice piece about you when you were working for Yahoo and the difference that you've made, and you were talking about the, the work that you'd done on Yahoo Search and everything like that, and you were clearly – making a difference and then you know what they say about never read the comments right so then i get to the uh, to the comments <laughs> and there's all these blind people there saying yes yeah, so what about the inaccessible capture and what about this that i can't do in yahoo and right. and, and and i'm not saying they're wrong to complain at all um because mm-hmm. they're consumers and they're entitled to expect full accessibility but you must have to deal with compromises right because people sometimes assume i think that uh, the blind people who work in these environments don't seem to know what's going on or that if, if only they could reach the, the blind people in these positions, they could make a difference. Often, you know exactly that what the problems are, but you've got to work the system, right? There are resource issues, there's there's convincing people, and you're fighting that good fight internally a lot, but you can't tell people that you're fighting the fight.
2: Yeah, it, you, you sort of have to... Not so much distantiate yourself from users, but you have to keep a distance because I think the big difficulty for someone who is blind working in, in a technology companies so or just you know, among sighted people, is that we're both users as well. So we have to, uh, we understand the user side of it because we ourselves are affected by this, which is a powerful weapon on its own, but this also means that you cannot just approach everything sort of super pragmatically. While you have to, you have you also realize that someone who is complaining about inaccessible capture it could be you, right? Or me in this case. And so I do completely sympathize, but at the same time, you know, you go into environment where there's a lot of sighted people with their own priorities and you have to make your priority being heard. Um to be you you want to make your priority to be heard. And you know, it's, it that's just it. You know, it's just one other priority for many people, you know accessibility is a priority for me well for somebody else uh, performance is a priority for somebody else uh, their own career is a priority for yet another person it's you know marketing whatever they're working on and and so getting people to, to uh, align with you and work on your side it's you know it's a difficult exercise in, in any situation not even necessarily accessibility but especially on top of it all with accessibility the issue is that for most people it's still a black box you know you say accessibility, and, and most people don't even know how to pronounce that. Well, not today. I guess today it's a bit better, but 10 years ago, you know, people would say, Oh, what is this? What do you mean? Like, what is I, I can access my website or whatever. So, on top of it all, you're, you're struggling with, with the issue of trying to explain to people uh, what it is actually. Then, what does it actually mean? And yeah, you know, the, these are everyday challenges that you have to fight. And, and it does hurt, of course, that that I cannot explain to people all the intricacies of being in a huge corp- corporation where you're just being one of the issues at best. But at the same time, I don't think that even if I tried to explain, I don't think many people would understand because, you know, it's it's you know what you know kind of thing, right? It's, yeah. it's an experience. If you never experienced it yourself, you will always be angry. And uh, I just, you know, try to be polite whatever I can. And I try to be understanding. If I can help, I, I definitely try to do that. Yeah. But I obviously realize that I cannot help everyone with every question. And so I need to define some sort of personal boundary for myself and say, you know, this is as much as I can do. And I think I'm much better, I'm much more useful fighting here, my internal fights because that's going to make a much bigger impact than trying to answer every tweet, tweet that comes my way, for example.
1: So you have to be a bit of a pragmatist. You have to take a long term view, I guess, and think, well, right. maybe I'm not going to win this battle, but I'm making some sort of right. gradual difference.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, a good example, if if I'm if we're working in the feature and I need to spend time, you know, writing code for something or prototyping or testing, uh, you know, I I, I have to allocate time for that because I know it's gonna have a much bigger eventually it'll help so many more people than trying to answer, you know, some complaint on Twitter. I always rely and you know, like on discussion lists, I know there's someone else who may answer a question in my stead, so I don't necessarily have to answer every question, even though I may know the answer to that question.
1: Mm. And sometimes there are space issues, and I always try – because I have this issue myself, I try to be very careful when I'm talking with with, with friends of mine who are working for other technology companies. If somebody who's in regular touch with you gets stuck Mm -hmm. and they have an issue, then you're inclined to help them, aren't you? But if you feel that your space is being invaded – by somebody who doesn't know you at all, doesn't engage with you, suddenly bombarding you with problem questions about where you work, let's say on your personal Twitter account. It's right. it's hard, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it definitely. And then you have to be, and there are certain things that we're required not to talk about, you know, as employees, you know, big companies. And so, you know, there's responsibility. even though it's your personal account, everything you say is in public, right? So, you know, I do have to be careful about how i express i may even agree with a lot of users yeah. <laughs> you know quite often quite often this is the case but it's not something i can say publicly you know that oh yeah you're right you know so and so did this and that you know once you're employed by one of these companies you don't completely belong to yourself i mean certain things yes you know if it's not work related but anything that's work related you do have to keep the
1: balance right now, you moved from Yahoo to PayPal. I'm very grateful for that because uh, <laughs> my my business is very dependent on PayPal. And PayPal is a very accessible experience overall these days on, on a bunch of platforms. So that must have been a good experience because I think you could probably point to a number of things where you can say, yes, this was my work. I made a real difference here.
2: Yeah, so… Uh- with Yahoo, as you know, we ran a pretty successful accessibility lab, among other things. Uh, but you know, <clears throat> there was a moment where Yahoo was going through. Well, I guess there were many moments, but one of the moments when Yahoo was going going through some turbulent times, and as a result of that, our team suffered. You know, half of the team was laid off, and so I I felt. Uh, that this was time for me to try something new. And so the opportunity came up at PayPal, and that's that's how I ended up at PayPal. It was a different uh, type of work because you were working with money. and uh, But on the other hand, I felt like making virtual money accessible to people was was an interesting area in itself. It was less about content. It was more about uh, how to make it quicker for them to pay and just get on with their own things. So it's a little bit of a, of a self um kind of self-absoluting sort of work. But uh, on the other hand, it was very interesting in that sense. Like you said, there's obviously merchants. And and again, you learn because, you know, most people know about PayPal as this company where you go in, you send money to s- someone, or if you purchase something, you just click on buy with PayPal, and you're done. But most people don't know there's actually the other side of PayPal, which is merchants, right? People like you, people who run businesses, and they have to rely on a lot of PayPal tools, to actually be successful as, as business, uh, as an entrepreneurs or businessmen. So yeah, there, there was a lot of work. And um, on top of it all, uh, one interesting thing that happened at PayPal is that we were allowed, uh, the, uh, our team was in a position where we could start a few open source projects. Some of them are used on websites, so today, like skip menu. It's basically mm-hmm. a, a tiny menu that you put on top of your website and it drops down list of headings. And then you can just arrow down through headings. It's it's different from what the screen reader would do. It's mostly it was intended for sighted keyboard users. You anyway, know, a few things like that. We started some accessibility extensions and so on and so forth. But um, I, I think eventually uh, I got to the point where I felt like people didn't. I, I've done. I felt like I've done all the interesting stuff that I was excited about. And when I felt I wasn't excited about things anymore, I just decided that it was time to. Um, To look for something else.
1: Well, you made a great contribution there. And I think one of the exciting things about PayPal being so accessible is that we do as blind people face a lot of discrimination with people. Uh, perhaps making judgments, informed judgments Mm -hmm. about what blind people are capable of. And these days, we can have an idea, start a website, use PayPal to uh, handle the transactions, and it's Mm -hmm. possible for a blind, self-employed person with a good idea and a bit of grit and determination to really make a go of of a successful business. So having PayPal there to be so accessible makes a big difference.
2: That that's cool. That's great to hear.
1: Yeah. Now, so the Google thing, we're getting to the Google. present day. I'm uh, interested in the recruiting process because Google's recruiting processes are quite legendary. You know, I, I read about how you get asked all sorts of crazy questions and in interviews and stuff like that. Was was it a was it a challenging process to to get inside Google?
2: I didn't think of it as challenging, but it was certainly exciting, and uh, it had a lot of its own. Things that you know, things that you hear, uh, you know, about rigorous process at Google, and you know, they're they're all true. You know, people do ask you very interesting questions, Uh, but it also depends what kind of role you're going for. So, since I was going for management role, my my track was slightly different than as if you were going for an engineering role. But yeah, it's it you know, it certainly was um, quite interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Google seems like a fascinating culture, and they have ways of nurturing their employees they have courses that you can take to hopefully broaden your skill set and your way of thinking I actually took the time over our summer which is, we're still in the middle of our summer here uh, to do the to read the book called Search Inside Yourself which you're probably familiar with because it's one of Google's most popular courses. I think they call it Google University. And this is all about mindfulness mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. uh, emotional intelligence. And it was absolutely brilliant. And I thought, well, it mm-hmm. must be a fascinating place to work just for the, the sheer culture of the place.
2: Yeah, it is, it is a very unique culture. I, I can't say that I work for too many companies, but out of the ones that I did work for, I think this is probably the most fascinating culture that I've encountered. I think it starts with people. I, I can't quite put my finger on exactly what makes the culture run, but it's somehow—it's I, I call it—it's a small democracy within, um, you know, within another democracy because it is a very competing culture. But at the same time, it's a culture that's accepting. You know, you rarely you, you hear where both can live side by side. You know, usually competition means someone's in, someone's out, right? Uh, at Google, somehow, uh, people are willing to give you a chance. People are willing, but at the same time, you have to be prepared to fight fight your way through. Uh, hard work is appreciated, but also there's a level of understanding where people, you know, are willing to understand if you have certain limitations. By now, the company is so big that it's probably I, I'm only embracing, you know, one fifth of the culture because I just work for one part of Google. But yeah, there is something. Uh, magical, uh, you know, about this culture to the point where, you know, we have musicians getting together. There are clubs, you know, of of musicians. There are clubs of dancers. There are, you know, clubs of theaters. I mean, your work for Google isn't just your work as a programmer or manager. I mean, for many people, it's basically a way of life, you know, which is really quite unique, I would say.
1: Tell me about your role at Google. What does it entail? What do you do?
2: Initially, when I joined, I worked for Google Plus, um, so I was in a position basically to um, not only educate with the team but work with engineers and, and managers, sort of help them build build accessibility into the product with, you know, with all the intricacies that come with it. You know, solving the actual technical problems. You know, working as an and I don't want to call myself advocate. Let's just say champion of accessibility. They call it here technical program manager. Basically, it's it's a combination of a management and uh technical visionary uh, visionary kind of skills and then i switched to uh, right now i work for android um specifically on talkback team and um that's a separate topic i guess too uh but you know talkback um is, is a screen reader so it's it's an interesting area because i know i can influence something directly actually something that i personally use on an everyday basis
1: I think it's a matter of pretty strong public record that you were a very early adopter of the iPhone. You got an iPhone 3GS, oh, yeah. and yep. you were very enthusiastic about that. In fact, you adopted it earlier than I did because I was pretty productive on my Symbian mobile device at the time using Braille and a Bluetooth keyboards and things that the original uh, 3GS with iOS, what were we, 3 yeah, iOS 3 didn't support. So you were in there from the very beginning. So when you took this on with Google, did you have a view that you would um, help talk back eventually to, to, to catch up, uh, to, to bridge a gap? Or did you not perceive that there was a gap at that point?
2: I had an idea because uh, when I was at PayPal, um, less so at Yahoo because Android was you know still back then kind of very young accessibility-wise operating system. But at PayPal, we had to do, you know, testing with Android and iOS, and you know, obviously the differences were pretty stark. Pretty much, I wrote off Android as as a platform that I would that I would want to use on an everyday basis. And so, when the Google opportunity came up, and especially later Android, you know, I honestly thought of it as a challenge to both myself as well as just to see if if we can pull it off because. Apple has done such an amazing job, uh, and I, I mean it both technically as well as as a so, social kind of uh, story. The, their contribution to the lives of not just blind people but people with disabilities, and also to the understanding of uh, technology for people with disabilities around the world, is so it's so powerful that it's it's eclipsing. You know, it, it, it eclipses everything else, which is it's not a easy um battle to take on um because i still do respect a lot quite quite a lot what apple does and i, I still think that they just do an amazing job with everything mac and uh, iphone and so on and so forth and so going and and taking on a uh, top back uh, was just a way for, for for me to challenge myself actually in many aspects number one um Talk back as a product itself. I, I would love I would love to dream that one day we can get to the point where people will perceive us just as equal player as a voiceover is on iOS. Uh, I think we're getting there. And obviously eventually to you know start start being um, better at least for Android, people who love Android and uh, and on the second level for me um, going into android was that it, there's everything new about android you know it's a different programming language i've never done anything in java it's a different ecosystem it's a different way of thinking with ios everything is kind of closed it's very controlled experience you get is what you get right there's no question uh, with android even just to give you one one very minor detail um what, we realized, what I realized pretty quickly just talking to people at conferences is that voiceover is generally being thought as blind-only product. So this is a screen reader for the blind, right? Um, TalkBack as it turns out is actually being used by people who have some slight vision. So uh, TalkBack is really less of a screen reader just for the blind. But it actually, I was really surprised to hear that. I somehow did, did not even consider that, but the fact that it's actually used quite a lot by people who are low vision wasn't, you know, a discovery for me, and that does make you think differently. You're no longer thinking about this as a screen reader. You do have to take into account that, for example, yes, linear navigation is important, but what if somebody just touches the screen in a certain place? They should have access to those same elements that all decided people. So I, I, I'm learning every day and I'm sort of reshaping my sort of, I, I I think I'm past that, but you know, every now and so often you know, think like, oh, you know, on iOS it would have been so much easier to do, you know, one, two, three, uh, but you know, here you have to kind of think, okay, what, what can we do given the constraints of Android? It's also a different work environment. I've never worked for Apple, so I don't know, but i only hearing from other people where things are a bit more streamlined and controlled. You know, Google obviously is a company with um, everybody has the right to have their opinion and you do have to make your voice heard. And so as a result, you know, this shapes how you work on the product and how you make things done, essentially.
1: Mm. Well, I think so the fact that horrible. you can – no, no, it's 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 fascinating. I think the fact that you can speak to the huge contribution that Apple has made is a testament to your integrity because, I mean, even though uh, some of us, myself included, do talk about some quality control and functionality issues with, uh, with Apple from time to time, there's no doubt that what they have done is absolutely life-changing and they've inspired oh, yeah. others to follow. It's a bit frustrating to many of us that Android took so long uh, to jump on this bandwagon and they have let Apple get streets ahead just because really initially the efforts that Android were making in this area of accessibility were really pretty mediocre. So mm-hmm. you've got well, you you've know. got you've got your work cut out, right? To to just play catch up, yeah. let alone then get to the point that you're introducing innovative features that people want that they they can get on iOS.
2: Right, and that's also a, a, one of the interesting things about my current work is that there is a temptation to start doing some innovative things. I mean, there's no lack of ideas, but you need to bring your house in order first before you can. You know, before you can start dreaming, dreaming big, right? So that's that's one of the things, and we started doing that. Uh, but yeah, you know, to your point about Android, well, I mean, all I can say this is you know, this is how technology works. You know, somebody jumps, somebody does something first, then others follow, and uh, there's really no justification or excuse, or this is just what happened, right? I mean, Apple happened to have the right idea. Uh, first, they happen to have the right people in the right place uh, and talented people uh, in addition to that, who were able to create an experience that, th- that was just so um, captivating to many people. And on top of it all, as someone who comes in and creates a new field, they've done not only done a great job, but there was nobody really to rival them. I mean, it's not like you had two screen readers on, on iPhone, right? So it was a little bit easy. To, uh, easier. Not, 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 I'm not trying to sort of down downplay uh, the work, but it's certainly way easier when you're just the only player on the platform, right? To do something right because it's the only right you have.
1: Yes, when you're in you, charge you of did, the whole ecosystem, you've yeah. got a big advantage for something like accessibility. Yeah.
2: But this is just the platform. You also have to accept that. I, I know it sounds a little strange, but uh, you have to accept the fact that you don't you don't have to be the best. You you just have to do. The best job, the best job uh, possible for the user. But because it's an open platform, I mean, anyone can go in and create tomorrow second talkback. So that's just a different way of thinking that we have to approach. Yeah, because it, it's the platform that encourages competition. It's the platform that says, yeah, by all means, you can even compile your own Android and call it, you know, your own name and start selling phones, you know.
1: Yes, it's exciting in that regard because there are so many devices to choose from. Uh, With my own situation, having a hearing impairment, the disappearance of the headphone jack on iPhone 7 had a huge impact on my life. And obviously, if that's important to you on Android, you can find a device that does have a headphone jack, and I'm sure that there will be devices that do for many years to come, even if they are not the flagship devices. There's also a whole range of price points. And for our community, many of whom are on fixed incomes and have uh, sociodemographic statistics pointing towards the the, the bottom of the spectrum, that's a really important factor too. So there is a lot going for Android in theory. I, I wonder what you what your views are on the user interface issues surrounding talkback i purchased a google nexus 6p last year and i was in the store really debating whether i should go with the 6p or whether i should go with a samsung galaxy device which does have a second screen reader it has one that that samsung do themselves and in the end i decided i would go with the Nexus device purely because of the software updates and that's another issue with Android of course is the fragmentation it can sometimes take quite a long time for software yeah. updates to roll out depending on the device that you purchased. so I got the 6P and um, now I, I accept user interface is really subjective so mm-hmm. one person's really groovy user interface is another person's challenge. I think the problem <laughs> yeah. that we might have with, uh, with touchscreen based screen readers now is that Apple's user the gesture set has become almost like a de facto standard because so many people have used it. And I still find the Angular gestures hard to remember. You know cumbersome, and that may be me. I accept I know that there are Android users using these every day perfectly fine, and they're saying, "What are you complaining about most And I understand that, but I just wonder whether <laughs> there there might be and yet the Samsung screen reader, which I understand has its own issues in terms of how frequently it's being updated and all those sorts of things, but it is a little bit more like the iPhone that i'm used to and i'm wondering whether you've given thought to this in terms of okay people who have been diehard android users for some years like what they like but is there any chance we will ever see some sort of compatibility mode where you have a mode and talkback that emulates the iphone gesture set which is also largely emulated in windows screen readers that have touch screens as well now
2: so regarding Samsung screen reader, um, I, I think most people don't know that it's actually it's a TalkBack, but from two years ago. Um, it's, again, another interesting thing about Android is that, you know, because TalkBack is open source, we're open sourcing uh, TalkBack every so often. And I think they've taken one of the snapshots and then they've added a few things to TalkBack um, to personalize it, make it their own Samsung screen readers, which I, I guess that's how Android works. In general, Samsung, if you notice, they do have a tendency of sort of aligning more with iOS, using Android as a vehicle. I mean, their home button is, is a physical button, just like on the iPhone. It's a different shape. But but to your point, when um, people come from iOS, naturally, uh, the expectation is uh, I would like to see things that I'm used to. And this was the same discussion people had when they were trying to switch to nvda right it was like why doesn't it work like joe's does you know i want nvda to do this and this and uh, i all i can say probably to answer your question is that we are definitely looking for ways to sort of make uh, uh, make the interface as familiar to users as possible it probably won't be exactly on par with 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 ios not so much there there's no Restriction: Why this cannot be done? It's just that I think that some of the things that were made on Talkback side aren't that bad. It's just that that probably were not implemented as well as they should have, and I feel like we could concentrate on that more than uh, trying to Talkback behave like Voiceover, uh, because, for example, um, there are just as many unhappy people about Rotor. I mean, I was one of them. I I I was never super huge fan of Rotor. I, I did like the idea because it looks so cute. Uh, you know, you show to sighted people and then suddenly the scene appears and you can rotate it. It kind of looked very cutesy. But it's for people with dexterity issues. It's not probably the, the best gesture. And we do our angle gestures, just like you said. And Some people don't really like them. In fact, I would say many people who come from iOS, they just just, I, I have no idea how to use this thing. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And so we're definitely looking into ways, either improving them or, you know, making gestures a bit more forgiving so that users don't have to struggle so hard. Uh, but um, because of certain philosophical differences in the way how frameworks implemented that, we're probably not going to have multi finger gestures. I, I, I don't anticipate this anytime soon.
1: That's interesting. So you're saying they are they are philosophical differences, you're saying, that we can't swipe yeah. with two or three fingers?
2: Yeah, I think the reason being is because uh, the two fingers, remember I mentioned users who are low vision, they want to be able to use uh, standard system gestures for performing gestures that they would be performing uh, if TalkBack wasn't on. And so uh, there are also devices that don't support multi-finger touch, although these are becoming less and less frequent. uh, But we still see people asking us, please don't, you know, don't introduce multi-finger gestures because my device doesn't support them really well. So, it's something we're taking very seriously. But uh, you know, right now I can't say that we are ready to switch to multi-finger gestures.
1: Is there a danger that in trying to cater to this sighted market or low vision market who want a little bit of speech feedback as they navigate the device, that you risk dumbing down the product for? blind people. I wonder whether there's a use case for two completely separate products there.
2: Yeah, and I think there there is there is definitely a thought there too where, where we're thinking basically all, it, this will involve a rewriting one of the components in TalkBack. So there is a consideration that it needs to be redone and that could be an opportunity for us to restart things from new. But I agree with you. At some point there is a cutoff point where we'll have we may need to say okay, this is a screen reader only for the blind, so we'll do whatever it takes to make blind pe- people happy, and this will be a product for people who are not blind people but want to use screen reader functionality. But at this point in time, we're not, we're not ready to, to say that this
1: is going to be the case. Mm. So it's something that's it's, it's under ongoing discussion. What's your assessment of the state of Android accessibility through TalkBack at the moment, and I realize that you you work for, for Google and I, I take that into mm-hmm. account, but I am philosophically with Google all the way. I, I love the fact that mm-hmm. the operating system is open. I like being able to just plug in my device to my Windows machine and copy stuff across to it in the right place and play it with a wide range of music apps. And the, the personal assistant stuff is just streets ahead in most respects, particularly in terms Uh of getting facts that you want. So I I, I love this thing. But for some reason, and I realize it could Uh well just be my familiarity Uh with what I've used for the last few years. When I pick up my Android device something stops me and makes me think, oh, goodness, mm. it's not quite ready yet. For example, I, I try to listen to something on tune-in radio, just to give you an example. Uh-huh. I, I listen to mm-hmm. a lot of radio, my, my own internet radio station, and I can't get audio ducking to work the way that I would expect, and I just can't have tune-in radio on in the background and and have my screen reader at a comfortable volume and just little things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I just little little things keep driving me back to iOS, even though I am actually ready to make a jump. So I'm just wondering what you think the the overall status of Android accessibility for blind people at the moment.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think we talked about this before, right? I mean, clearly iOS is still a much more p- polished experience, and precisely it always comes down to this little thing, just like yeah. you mentioned, the ability, the you know, audio ducking being uh, consistent everywhere. You know, we do have audio ducking. Feature in Talkback, right? But it works in some apps. It doesn't work in other apps. And and because again, it's an open ecosystem, we do provide ability for apps to, if they do things correctly, it should work. But because they don't have to do things correctly, right? It's sort of remember uh, on Windows how things used to work. If people design using standard widgets, then suddenly the app is like uh, the application is very accessible. Mm -hmm. If they use some custom elements, you know, like any of these musical program, uh, the recording like programs like sonar or uh, we basically as blind people had to step in and, and do the rest of the work because the application itself was just far from being accessible and so on android on android we have slightly similar situation is that there are features within the the android framework for developers to do the right thing but either they don't know it or because they don't want to whatever the case may be uh they're just not taking advantage of of uh, of all the accessibility features that are built in now, having said that, I, I've noticed something interesting. I recently talked to uh, one of my friends who just uh, who started using um, Android because of his work. And, and he was actually surprised to find out that there's a lot more uh, – the apps that he thought were inaccessible on iOS were quite accessible on Android, which I find rather interesting. But I had that same experience with, um, you know, like banking apps and so on and so forth because they're using – um, so one one last area I want to point out is so as far as music is concerned, um, I, I I could not agree more with you that I think iOS is still leaps ahead. You know, I'm looking at GarageBand or I'm just looking at. You know, so I do have my iPad with me whenever I need to use music. There's hands down, I I couldn't do half of what I can do with my music. Mm. No, not even half, probably less with Android. So again, there are some areas where Android accessibility is is pretty good and I think we as a team need to be doing a better job educating developers or create, you know, sort of more um, and you know again, like you you have noticed yourself that things have gotten better within the year. so it is a work in progress
1: it's significantly uh, better actually and and you're right. I have found that there are certain apps in Android that work far better than their iOS equivalents and it's a bit of a lottery to to work out which ones that, those might be. but I have seen that and where you get a lot better accessibility on one platform over another. I guess I would be remiss if I didn't, especially on behalf of my uh, deaf-blind friends, mention the state of Braille or accessibility or, or lack thereof, because mm-hmm. this is yeah. this is something that really has um, caused considerable concern. I, I don't know if there's any comment you feel you're able to make on that.
2: We obviously realise that you know Braille back uh, needs needs more work, and, and uh, there will be some news coming up soon. So
1: okay, that that that's fine. I appreciate that. Well, we've had a great discussion, and, and uh, I just want to say thank you for all you've contributed. I think your story is just wonderful, and um, the fact that you've uh, come to the United States made a huge difference for all of us. It's absolutely brilliant. So I, I appreciate you giving us some time. Oh, And just before you do go, because I, I hope that we can end this with a piece of music, you're still making uh-huh. music, even though you have uh, this this important work that you're doing. You're making music and what are you producing that music on these days?
2: Yeah, so so I recorded uh, the album Vanilla Fields back in 2009 and then um, I, I sort of had this break in between that and now and so um, now I'm c- kind of getting back. But my recent, um, you know, I have a few guitars. I have electric guitar, I have a, a seven-string baritone acoustic guitar, which is one of my favorite instruments I record on that um you know obviously I use logic logic pro and the recently i don't know if you heard of complete control that uh, they new, um that just introduced new accessible interface really? i started learning piano piano a little bit has has been always my dream but i never had uh, time. so no, logic so, pro's
1: like a step up from garage band is that right it's kind of like yes yes, yes. Professional yeah logic
2: pro yeah exactly mm-hmm. and yeah. so so i i'm not actively recording right now but i'm i'm collecting material for something new
1: so that's so awesome.
2: That's a also, work in progress.
1: <laughs> you have a folksy feel about some of your stuff. Is that fair oh, to cool. say? It's yeah. kind of grassrootsy. Yeah, I
2: guess, you know, I, I've, I've, I guess if you say so, I think maybe um, I, I've never been really good at, at uh, genres. I always call my music soft jazz, but yeah, many people um, put it somewhere between folk and jazz or something. like I yeah. don't know. It's but you're right. There's probably some. Uh, Maybe because it's accessible, like usually there's a lot of melody in my music. So I I don't know what makes it folksy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, good on you for being in the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt would say. It's a great contribution that you continue to make. And I look forward to seeing what magic you work with uh, TalkBack and other things within Google in the future. And uh, maybe in subsequent years we'll get you on the podcast to get an update. But I appreciate you being so generous with your time.
2: Thank you so, so much. I appreciate talking to you as well.
1: Victor Tsaren, Google's Technical Program Manager Accessibility Initiatives. And how about we finish the way we started talking with Victor? I mentioned that in 2000, I was introduced to Victor's music. So let's play a track from him to end the podcast. This is Victor Tsaren with Vanilla Fields. Mm -hmm.
0: Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.